0: welcome. As we come uh, now to the scripture, I ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, the word of God is out and opened, at least here and before us. And we pray now that you would be with us as we listen, as we hear more of the word of God. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that uh, it's available to us, this word. Thank you that we don't have to sneak around uh, to buy it or to read it, but we can uh, open it. a moment's notice, and be edified, be built up, be strengthened, be revived by your word. So I pray that it would have its perfect work now in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 2, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2. During this time of Advent, we'll be reading some from various passages of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, please. Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Advent, arrival, um, appearance, coming. Uh, someone has come, and that is our Lord Jesus. Um, have you ever wondered about the Incarnation? How it is that God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and actually dwelt among us. I don't know about you, but I've spent some measure of my life thinking about what it would have been to have been alive when Jesus was on the earth. What that would have been like, this uh, incarnation. Uh, J.I. Packer, a book called Knowing God... He writes of the Incarnation, and he titles it as the Supreme Mystery. He says this, he says, The real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, does not lie in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, That the second person of the Godhead became the second man determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race. And that he took humanity without loss of deity. So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. The word became flesh, John 1.14. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. There was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It's here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many of those who feel the difficulties concerning the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection, have come to grief. It is from misbelief about the Incarnation that difficulties at other points in the Gospel story usually spring up. But once the Incarnation is grasped as reality, these other difficulties dissolve in other words well once you really believe that jesus was god in the flesh then then why wouldn't he do miracles once you believe that jesus is god in the flesh uh, uh why wouldn't his teaching be with great authority uh, why wouldn't his death be one that was atoning why wouldn't he be raised from the dead why wouldn't he ascend and rule and reign over all things and return uh, all of that i mean once you grasp that I know I've, I've said this before on a few different Advent Sundays throughout the years. But I do remember one time when Larry King, uh, the interviewer of, of those uh, many of the most important people, probably in the latter part of the 20th century, early part of the 21st century. Uh, now I think he just does infomercials. Uh, but was once asked who he could interview if he hadn't, he hadn't interviewed. And he said, Jesus. And he said, I'd have one question for him. And the one question is, were you virgin born? Because he said that answer would change everything. It really does. God with us. God in the flesh. And you think, wouldn't you, that if God actually came to earth, that he'd fix everything. He'd either get rid of all the bad stuff or change everything so that all would be right. I mean, you'd think then, in the incarnation when Jesus came, in His first advent, that, that everything would be set, set right. But the, 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 the problem is, we're still here. I mean, like, we're still here. <laughs> the way we are. And the world is still the way it is. And yet, Christ really has, really has come. It isn't that he didn't do anything. He did all that was necessary for him to do to bring forgiveness of sins and reconcile people to God and defeat the enemy. But yet we realize that he didn't set everything right, as he will when he comes again. And so we know there's two advents. One has happened, one is still yet to come. In his first advent, we, we could put it like this, many have, that he inaugurated the kingdom. It, it came in its beginnings, if you will. And when he comes in his second advent, then he'll bring it all to fruition, to fulfillment. Uh, the consummation, if we could say it like that, of the kingdom. Now, when we read the Old Testament, uh, I read from Isaiah when we read the Old Testament, what we find, especially with the Old Testament prophets, is that they kind of kind of see all oh, this as one big event. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, some people put it like this, that when you're looking from a distance at mountain peaks, you may not be able to see the gap in between them. You just see the the big, one big peak. And that's kind of how the, the prophets saw it. They kind of saw through from this first coming to a second coming. They, they kind of always just kind of breeze right through. And, and didn't see these two. In fact, it was, it was pretty surprising, you might remember, to the disciples of Jesus. After Jesus had risen, we read this in Acts 1. After Jesus has risen, had risen, they said, well, it's now the time you're going to restore the kingdom. And, and Jesus said, no, oh, just wait a while. There's, some going, there's something else here. And, and so what we realize now is that we live in between these two uh, advents. This passage in Isaiah chapter two, that I read, is one of these passages that that kind of puts it all together. We see the work of Christ, if you will, from beginning uh, from beginning to end. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in uh, the eighth century-ish uh, BC. Um, it was a time that Israel was divided already into two kingdoms: the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And um, the northern kingdom was called Israel generally and the southern kingdom was most often referred to as Judah And so he was a prophet we see uh, Concerning Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 2 verse verse 1 Now during this century the northern kingdom would be scattered And in the next one uh, the southern kingdom would be Exiled all because of their sin. So we realize what's happening and what's at stake here, but Isaiah speaks to uh, Judah and Jerusalem, particularly uh, in this this passage. And it's fascinating, just take note of, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he saw the word. It was a message, but he saw it. A vision, perhaps, uh, whatever. He saw it in his mind's eye from God, and, and, and he reported it to us. And what he saw was, in some sense, a familiar scene, but but very different. Some sense a familiar scene to him, but, but, but took on different proportions. Um, and he'd realized that this wasn't something likely to take place in his own lifetime. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, it shall come to pass in the latter days, so sometime in the future, you get the sense sometimes more endish than the time that he was living in. So sometime in this time past. And again, he saw something. He said that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain and shall be lifted up uh, above, above the hills um, in his day. There were uh, three primary feasts that Israelites, particularly men, Would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Uh, Passover, uh, Pentecost. Today reminds me, this should be Pentecost Sunday, not Advent Sunday with all the wind blowing. But uh, uh, Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And during this time, people would ascend, if you will, uh, to Jerusalem and uh, Mount Zion to the house of the Lord, the temple area, for sacrifice and worship. And there they would come to learn the ways of God and to hopefully then leave and to walk in these ways. This was uh, to happen. And it was to happen in such a way, ideally, that all the nations around would see. And if all the nations around could see, and then they could come, then, then 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 perhaps there would be peace. That was the ideal notion of it. What's interesting, of course, always, is that Mount Zion wasn't the tallest mountain at all. Like Psalm 68, the psalmist kind of personifies the mountains, and he says the other mountains are jealous of Mount Zion, because it's the exalted one, really. It's, it's, it's the house of the Lord. And so even the taller mountains are, are jealous of, of this, this particular uh, mountain. But, but what's so astonishing here is that what Isaiah sees is not simply Israelites going up, so that they could get in the presence of God and sing Psalm 122, which we read this morning as our call to worship, that I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. My feet are standing and have been standing uh, within your gates, O Jerusalem. And, and they would sing that because they'd be delighted to be there, delighted to be in the presence of God on their best days. But, but what Isaiah sees is not just Israelites coming, but, but the nations, people from everywhere every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And and it was in the best days that that people would come into Jerusalem and and sing that wonderful Psalm 122, but but these weren't the best days. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1 to get a sense of what the days were like, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up but they've rebelled against me. And verse 3 is just one of those terribly sad verses. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So the animals, I mean they have better relationships than we have creator created chosen people and their god. Verse 5 why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole earth is sick. The whole heart faints. Then in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Anytime God references Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not a good thing. Right? Just, just isn't. You know, this is a bad time. Bad time. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've... Had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. You know, these were sacrifices that God had instituted. He says, when you come to me, bring these. But he says, you know, they make me sick. When you bring them. Why, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. He says, These offerings, they're not coming from the hearts at all. He's doing this to do it. Doing this because you have to. Doing this because you think somehow this is going to appease me and everything will be okay if you do this, if you check off the boxes. Bring no more vain offerings, incenses and abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. These two things together. Your you're, you're, you're sin and, and yet still you come to praise me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of, of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. that 's not good. It's not good. Now, always, and, and we'll find, if you, you know some of our... Some of the women of our church have studied Isaiah recently, but if you have a chance to read Isaiah, it's not an easy read by any means. Not simply because of all the difficulties that the people faced and so forth; it's just not an easy, not an easy read. But but, but what you find are, are are these judgment, these passages of people's sin and judgment? But all I sprinkled in are these wonderful passages of great hope. It's almost as if God can't go too long speaking of sin and judgment. Before he says, but but, but 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 there's this remedy because I'm your God and and I, I'll be faithful to you, and so that's what we find even in chapter two here. We, we find this this look of great hope from Isaiah. He says, "Listen, in the latter days it really will come to pass uh, that that there, there'll be peace. That there'll be peace, and all the nations will come to the house of the Lord, and they'll learn my ways," says the Lord. There they'll be and they'll they'll walk in them, and and so. There really There really will be this piece i don 't know about you, but context of the world in which we live live that 's a great word of hope but yeah don 't you still wonder, will it ever be and so the Israelites find themselves there, but the question then is, all right, when are these latter days? Uh, something is just at the very end, right before the return of Jesus. But, but that's not how the Bible puts it. Acts chapter 2. I trust some of you, many of you are familiar with this passage in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter is preaching. You remember Jesus had uh, died, risen, uh, ascended. The Holy Spirit came on that day of Pentecost and blessed the disciples of Jesus who were there. And Peter began to preach. And uh, verse 17 says, and in the last days, quoting the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall pros- prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and so forth and so on. And verse 21, most significantly, and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter is saying, this is that this is. What was taking place on the day of Pentecost is what the prophet Joel was talking about would take place uh, in the last days, the latter days. And so so it begins these latter days begin with the coming and the the, the dying and the rising and the ascending and the sending of the spirit. Uh, The last days have begun. Um, The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so the last days have begun. John, when he writes in his first epistle, calls the days in which we live the last hour. And so things have begun. Now, it's taking a while, obviously, but, but these are those days of which the prophet spoke. Something has happened. Uh, of great, of great significance. Uh, Jesus uh, would relate in some ways to this prophecy from, from Isaiah. He talked about worship and he talked about mountains. Remember when uh, he met the woman at the well, Uh, one of her concerns was, so where do we worship? I'm a Samaritan, we, we, we worship on that mountain over there. You're a Jew and you worship on that mountain over there. So which is the mountain? Well, you would think maybe Jesus would quote Isaiah and say, well, we need to go up to the mountain, uh, on this mountain in Jerusalem. He said, no, 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 a day's coming. Well, that won't matter. day is coming, you see, when, when all these prophecies will be fulfilled. They were prophecies, they... They spoke of something in figurative language. They spoke of something in prophetic language that's going to take place. It, it isn't about the mountain. It's about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Ah, oh, yes, of course. And, and even Jesus was the very presence of God with us. Wherever he was, he didn't have to be anymore on a mountain. God, God lived in this temple And the Holy of Holies, most holy place, obviously that couldn't confine him. But if he wanted to meet God, I mean, that was the place to go. And he lived among his people from there. And and, and yet there was Jesus, God in the flesh, walking around. In fact, he knew himself to be the very temple of God. Remember one occasion he looked at the temple and he said, Destroy this temple. And I'll raise it up in three days. In John chapter 2, John adds for us, he was speaking of his, the temple, which was his body. Because he was the very presence of God. That's what a temple is. Where does God dwell? Well, in Jesus. He's walking around right there. So you, you, our minds are kind of uh, having a, a paradigm shift here from, from temple, physical temple on hill in Jerusalem to now. That doesn't matter, but Jesus is walking around and he's the very, the very presence of God, uh, with us. Yet still, Jerusalem was an important place for Jesus. In fact, Luke's gospel is arranged around the geography of Jesus' comings and goings, and and the significant sort of pivotal moment in Luke's gospel comes in chapter nine, where the scripture says, "Then Jesus set his face, and some of the older translations put it like this: set his face like flint. He's stone-faced. Set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem." And so you get this sense as he really is going up, isn't he? He's really going to ascend up into the house of the Lord. It's like he's the one who goes first. He's the one that is the pilgrim. He's the one who's the, 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 the real one who goes first. And so he goes and, and, and he's Goes for us, but remember what he did when he went there. He gave himself. He was the sacrifice. And remember what happened when the sacrifice was made. Uh, the veil of the temple it, it ripped in two, top to bottom. What well, Jesus is saying: Come on in. Through me, you get into the very presence of of of, of God. Uh, you don't need these other priests. I'm your priest. You don't need these other sacrifices. I'm the sacrifice. So uh, Jesus says: Come on in. Come into the very presence of God through Faith uh, in in me. And then what happened? Well, he rose. Well, then what happened? He ascended. Well, then what happened? He sent his spirit. Well, where did spirit end up? Within his people. Within his people. So much so, his people would be called the body of Christ. And the apostle puts it that as the body of Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that you, that's a plural you, collectively you, do you not know that you are God's temple? That's a singular temple, one temple, And the God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Oh my. We have that very temple. Then Ephesians in chapter 2. In verse 19. Again, Paul writes, Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but... Your fellow citizens with the saints and and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. No longer on this hill in Jerusalem. but, but, But us, his church, his people. And then Peter sings the same song, different verse. First Peter, and uh, chapter 2. Verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you. Of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received, received mercy. And so we're the ones. We're the ones that Isaiah talks about, who calls out and says, come, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's go to the. Mountain to the house of the Lord. And where are we asking them to come? We're asking them to come to Christ. You see, he's given to us, as he put it, the keys to the kingdom, the gospel. He's given to us, as Paul puts it, this great deposit, the gospel. So now we're the ones saying, come. And we're not just saying it to ones like us, but we're saying it, come to all peoples, all the nations, if you will, from every race every ethnicity, from every culture, from every walk of life, whether rich or poor, whether educated or not, whether attractive or not so much, whether popular or not, regardless of what your sins have been, whether they're sins the culture puts great shame upon, or whether they're sins which, as our dear brother Jerry Bridges, tongue in cheek, put, are respectable, not so noticeable, if you will. Regardless of any of that, regardless of age or generation, political affiliation, any of that, the call is to go out. I said, come, come to the mountain, learn his ways, you see, and and follow, and follow them. That's what, that's what we. That's what we say. And and what we're saying to them is is we're saying, come to this this as the author of Hebrews put it the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And and the end result of this, you see, is peace, real peace. Now, as we see it first and foremost, it's peace where the real hostility exists. The real hostility between human beings and God. See, that, that's why governments and political processes and political treaties can't bring peace because, because it has to begin somewhere else. It has to begin with human beings actually uh, being brought into peace, reconciled to God because that, that's the real hostility. That's the real rebellion. The hostility exists from God's perspective because of his holiness. He can't simply receive us Because he's holy and we're not. And it exists too from our perspective. Because we see God as a threat to our autonomy. We want to do it ourselves. That's what causes trouble with God and with each other. And Jesus deals with both of those. He solves the hostility between human beings and God. By taking it upon himself. The guilt of our sin. And the judgment that is to be ours. So that God's wrath, His justice is dealt with, satisfied, extinguished. So that God now can say, come through Jesus. And when we hear that word, then our hearts melt as the Spirit applies it to us. Because then we see that we're actually loved. And <laughs> God isn't a threat to us. He's not a threat to our autonomy, but He's the blessing for us to be exactly we always had made us to be. Thus, you see, Jesus handles the hostility and therefore in Him, through Him, we come and can call others to come as well. And that brings that peace. And then that peace works in us so that we can be reconciled and love and love one another. Isaiah sees that. He sees it ultimately. And the only language he has is, is good human language to say, here's what happens. We're going we're gonna to beat our, our swords into plowshares. We're going we're gonna to do something productive with these elements that had once brought destruction. And, and, and now we're going to do something productive with everything that God will redeem it all. And and he sees it in all of its glory. And, and there it is. And so on the one hand, we... We live in it in some measure. And we wait for it in its fullness. So what are we to do in the meantime? Well, you read, uh, you heard we're reading these various passages this morning. So you read that Hannah read this morning from Matthew in chapter 24. And when she was reading, I I hope you were listening. I trust you were uh, a very familiar passage. Uh, That passage in Matthew 24 begins with the disciples of Jesus on on the mount with him. And they're asking him for signs of his really a second coming, the end of all things. You don't know it quite in that language yet. But the sign of of, of the end of all things and and. um, the beginning of the kingdom in its fullness, and, and and you know Jesus never liked people ask for signs. We love signs because we like to prepare for things. We want to know what's going to happen, and so we, we 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 look at various. We we watch the weather channel. I don't, but some people do. I have a window. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, watch the Weather Channel and plan out everything, you know. And, uh, and we get, we get indicators of our health. We get indicators of the economy. We're always trying to plan uh, good things to do, I suppose. But, but Jesus didn't like it when people ask him for, for signs of, of the end, if you will. He used phrases like, you wicked and adulterous generation. Again, he wasn't really happy about those questions. Um, What Jesus was concerned with is in the interim, between the two peaks, in the interim, be faithful. In the interim, persevere in faith. And you remember some of the things that he talked about. In fact, in the the passage that, that, uh, that, that Hannah read, he said it's going to be like in the days of Noah. Life is going to be going on. And you think, how could life be just going on in the days of Noah? God described that time period as like this, that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. And you go, that doesn't sound good at all. But but human beings are used to that. That doesn't seem abnormal at all. So they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking and so forth. It's as if life was going on. Not too many people even seem to notice the guy building the big ark. Yeah, but it was when the water started, from various sources, it, it was, it was, it was, it was too late then. And he so, so be reminded. Nobody knows the day and hour. Jesus said, I don't even know it. So, so, so live watchfully. Stay awake. Beware of false Christs. Beware of false ways. Be wary even of the false way that has the right diagnosis but the wrong solution. The right diagnosis that we are sinners, the wrong solution is just do better. Just do better. Be a good person. Surely God will take account of that? Oh no. Or, or the one that we hear so often that all paths, all face, all paths really lead to God. You go, how could they do that when Jesus said, no, 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 no I'm the way. And when Jesus was so unique and what Jesus did is to atone for our sins. Only someone who is the son of God could really do to atone for our sins. So how could all paths lead to God when there's this path that Jesus said really is the only way. I am it. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. Right. I'm the I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth and the life. I'm the true vine. I'm all of that. Nobody else is. And so this is what you need. So come to me. Why would you go anywhere else? Come to me. so not to fall for that. Not, not to fall for political schemes or economic systems or philosophies of life that we come up with. But no, just in Jesus. Don't go for a false Christ. Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of war. When you hear of these things, there's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes, tornadoes. I don't know that he was a Kansan, so he didn't put that in there. But, but all these things that we, that we see that, that make life difficult and bring destruction, so they're just going to be happening. Those are, don't be deceived. Watch. Keep the faith in the midst of that. He says it's going to come. It's going to come unexpectedly. So, so keep, keep going. You're not going to be able to predict the time. If you have a time in your mind that you know Jesus is coming back, he just won't. Because nobody gets to have the satisfaction of saying, I knew it was going to be Tuesday at 2. No. This simply won't happen. So just be about my business. Which is, be about worship. Be about the word. Be about prayer. Be about walking with him. Being about witnessing of him. See, all of those things help us keep the faith, be about worship. It is to give him thanks, to be thankful. We just went through Thanksgiving. It's amazing. It's wonderful that, that we still have a day that we set aside as a, as a country to be thankful. I, I don't know if it works or not in people's lives. But, but, but it's to be the life of the Christian. We're to live thankfully. And, and you know, at least how I process that. I've shared this before. That I spend time often comparing what I have with what I want. And usually I can be thankful. The problem with that is my wants are growing. Uh, so I compare what I have with what I need. And I can always be thankful there. Though my needs are always being redefined. And so I need to spend time comparing what I have with what I deserve to have. Uh, that I worship. Because I have heaven. And I really deserve hell. I've been justified. But I really deserve to be condemned. I've been adopted into the family of God, and yet I really deserve to be estranged from him. And so when I look at all that, and then I ask the question, "Well, why do I have what I have? Why do I have what I don't deserve? How did I get that? And of course, the answer is Jesus. Nobody else can provide that. And the more I review that, the more I'm thankful, the more I worship the less likely I am to be deceived by anybody else because nobody can do that. And then, uh, by the word. It revives the soul. It brings life. It's the truth. Uh, The more I have my nose in this book, the better. Because I'm constantly reviewing, constantly going over that which is really true. The longer I stay away from the book, uh, I forget things. I forget things. One of the great benefits of fasting is is that we begin to long for food and realize how dependent we are on it. As we fast from the word of God, there's a danger, just like fasting from food for too long. If you fast from food for too long, you lose your appetite. Well, at first, it's all you can think about. But if you go too long, you may lose your appetite. Uh, Danger. Don't fast from the word of God. After a while, you may not miss it. prayer, of course, because when we pray, we're always reminding ourselves that we're dependent upon God. Praying is just that saying, God, I need this. You're the only one who can supply it. Please help me. And even if we can see our hands and our feet and our minds supply things being used as the means, we remember that, oh, it's God who gives us the strength. It's God who gives us the wisdom. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray for strength. We pray for help that he'll use all the means at our disposal to provide the needs that we have. And so we're always dependent upon him as we As we pray and then we're to walk, we're to live it out. Even Isaiah says now, Israel, live in light of the Lord. We're to walk it out. We're to bear witness of him. That is to say that we're to speak of him as often as we possibly can. One of the wonderful things about gathering together as Christians is that this gives us opportunity to vocalize what we know to be true about Jesus. So we get in the habit of it. So it reminds us even when we're out there and people don't want to hear it, we can still share it. We need to be here together uh, speaking that which is true about Christ in a favorable circumstance, a favorable situation. And Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 it's a wonderful little expression. Uh, it's used often in various places, usually out of context, but at least it reminds us with Isaiah 1, verse 18, <clears throat> where the prophets speaks on behalf of God when God says, Come now, let us reason together. <laughs> and it's sort of like God saying, Come on, let's uh, you know, sit down, grab a cup of coffee, let's talk. Let's reason together about this. But, but God kind of, as he often does, takes hold of the conversation. And he says, Well, you know, if you want to reason about this, your options are twofold. You just have two. The first one is in verse 16 and 17 of that passage. He says, So, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. If you want to sit with me, do that. How's that working for you? Has there been a generation... That's done that? Has there been a generation that can wash themselves, clean themselves, live perfectly like that? Here's your second option Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Second option God says, Let me take care of it. Here's what I can do. I can take your sins that are scarlet and I can wash you. I can cleanse you. I can work in you that you can really live. How'd he do that? Well, on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus was with his disciples and he he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave it to his disciples. <clears throat> and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me the apostle adds as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup we declare the lord's death until he comes so so what are we declaring we're declaring that though our sins were like scarlet they shall be white as snow that he really did it he really brought cleansing he really brought peace between us and god he really brought peace between us and one another Now he says, declare that until he comes. Uh, Isaiah said to the Israelites, live in light. Live in the light of the Lord. We're to live in the light of this. We're to live in the light of what he has done. We're to live in the freedom of forgiveness of sins. We're to live in the freedom of calling him our father and going to him. We live in the freedom of living together as brothers and sisters forgiving one another, bearing with each other, encouraging each other, being patient with each other. And as we do that, we declare his death. It really happened. It really worked. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us that as we come to this table, that we have a great sense of assurance of our union with you and with each other. All that secured not by anything that we've done. Most of what we've done, perhaps all of what we've done has fostered separation from you and each other. But yet, we know we can't cleanse ourselves. We know we can't live as we are to until you have cleansed us and filled us with your spirit and enabled us. So help us to live in such a way, God, that we, as your people, united, declare the death of Christ until that great and terrible and glorious day when he comes again. And this I pray, that you would take this bread and you would take this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus, the one who has given himself for us and united us to God and to each other. And this we pray in Jesus' name.